1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I am Khalid. I am a master's student at the University of Oxford. And today I'm delighted to have with us a very special guest, Professor Francesca Orsini. And we will be talking about her 2023 book, East of Delhi, Multilingual Literary Culture and World Literature, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Professor Orsini is Professor Emerita of Hindi and South Asian Literature at SOAS, University of London. Uh, The breadth of her scholarship spans a time period from uh, the early modern era to contemporary times. She has written extensively on the print culture in North India, the Hindi public sphere, on early Hindi literature, on decolonization and the ideology of form, uh, and, and has of late been working on world literature as well of which this book is uh, one product. Uh, first of all, Professor Orsini, a very warm welcome to you on this podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Khalid. Delighted to be here.
0: Uh, Professor Orsini, why don't we start this by uh, you telling us something about yourself, your research interests, and, and how did you come to write this book?
1: So this is my third monograph, believe it or not, in uh, <laughs> uh, almost uh, 30 years. So it's not exactly... And it's a work oh, that took me... The best part, I think, almost twenty years actually to write. Um, it's a, it's a, because it's multilingual, because it covers a long period. I was doing other things at the same time, but uh, it's a, it's been a slow burn. Uh, I actually come from my my first undergraduate degree was in in Hindi, and we did a lot of 1950s, 1960s Nai writers. Mm. So when I after that, I was keen to explore more. And my first book, um, The Hindi Public Sphere, was really an attempt to do a kind of cultural, um, social history of Hindi literature in the early 20th century. I worked a lot with magazines and literary associations. And then I discovered that the kind of should Hindi, that a modern um, sort of a modern process. Mm -hmm. And so then I was keen to discover what was there before and as you said i worked first on the multilingual print culture of 19th century of the 19th century commercial print culture with hindi and urdu and then um, it seemed to me that underlying the the Hindi and also pure hindi sanskar is as we know very well from contemporary india now right now but also from the early 20th century a kind of a a view of uh, history and of, and of the Hindi Hindu community within it, which saw everything that had to do with Persian Urdu, you know, Muslims as inevitably foreign and alien. So I thought that um, if. Uh, In fact, instead, uh, North Indian society and literary culture were multilingual and actually people were familiar with several idioms and and traditions and so on. But the literary histories were written in very monolingual and Mm -hmm. monocultural ways. Uh, One really had to kind of in a way start at the beginning. Uh, So from the early, you know, important works in Hindi interestingly written by Sufi poets, Sufi Muslim poets, um, to uh, rethink and and rethink uh, the the historical narrative underpinning Hindi literature, um, as well as to rethink Hindi literature in ways that were more suited and um, fitted more the kind of multilingual society of which literature was was part and was a product.
0: Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, Sufis and and the context of Muslims and Hindus and languages being ascribed to these communities on uh, ethno-religious terms, uh, because you begin the book with a a very interesting story about the translation of uh, Malik Muhammad Jayasi's Padmavat into French, but that not becoming a part of world literature, even though that happens in, I believe, the 19th century or something. so the, the concept of world literature is kind of very central to this book. So if you'd like to tell us a bit about what world, what world literature is and what are your criticisms and your interventions and, and what approaches do you have to deal with that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, world literature, um, I mean, there are many, many ideas of world literature and approaches to world literature. So there's, I think... a an enduring sense of world literature as being, you know, the best literature of all the world. And that, I think, um, remains in a kind of common sense idea of what is world literature. But world literature as a kind of discipline has been, or a field, is re- has really resurfaced or redeveloped or been re-energized by people like Pascal Casanova, a French scholar who died, unfortunately, very young, and uh, david jamrosh at harvard um, as the kind of comparative literature for the global age so the idea that you know the discipline of comparative literature has very european uh, roots Um, it's in fact based on this idea of transcending national literatures. so comparative literature is that which is not national and by saying it's it's that that goes beyond in fact it reinscribes the idea that there are national literatures in individual languages, so Italian literature or German literature or Danish literature. Um, and then the problem became, or for me um, and people like me who come from different parts of the world, is that uh, when uh, people like um, Pascal Casanova, David Amros, Franco Moretti, who was one of the early theorists, you know, tried to say, okay, now we have to do now comparative literature has to be world literature, it can't be just literature in European languages, what they did was try to immediately try to manage it, to say, oh, it can't be the whole of world literature, however, so, you know, to try and immediately say, oh, this is world literature, this is not. So to define it, but also to manage it in models um, borrowed from the social sciences. So whether it's Immanuel um, Wallerstein's model of, you know, world system theories with center, periphery, semi-peripheries, or um, uh, Pierre Bourdieu's idea of literary field writ large, and the problem is that then uh, a kind of a, the promise of world literature, which is that t- to open up and be interested in the whole world, becomes ex- closes down very quickly because then everything that is not European or in European languages becomes immediately peripheral or semi-peripheral. Um, caught in a kind of um, catching up and uh, you know uh, diffusionist models of the world, or or ha- or else uh, you know that which is written in Vietnamese or Indonesian does not circulate so widely, so it cannot be world literature. So my intervention um, in this book, which in fact uh, I had great difficulties in placing as a world literature oh. book, you know, I tried uh, actually um, non-South Asian series and I tried to say although this book deals with not literature is actually a book about also a book about world literature and and publishers and editors would say no this is a book about you know a region it's not the world because world mm. literature people have the sense of you know the transnational trans you know global circulation but in fact my under you know one of my strong arguments in this book is that there isn't one world literature there isn't one world literary system, but world literature actually looks very different from different locations, and which can be geographical locations, ideological locations, locations of genre, locations of affiliation. So then um, it's, you know, it's not that, oh, we need more work before we can arrive at one world literature, but actually I much prefer Debjani Ganguli's um, definition of world literature, which is where literature is an optics and a ground for conversations. So rather than, okay, certain works or certain authors, of course, appear, no, they've already gained this stature and wide recognition. But actually, world literature allows us, as we do in fact in our um, in the series that we co edit on Cambridge Studies in World Literature. World well, literature can be a conversation between Persian and Arabic poetic modernisms or um, another book by Duncan Yoon on, you know, China in African literature. So it's a kind of it doesn't have to be the whole world. It doesn't have to be even works that everybody knows, because in fact that would be kind of boring if, uh, you know, well, literature were just what we already know. Um, what is there? What's the excitement? What is there to discover? But really, more in optics, trying to find different ways of doing world literature, so my gamble in east of Delhi is to say, okay, um, if most of the of the approaches to world literature have been this kind of systemic top down approaches, what does world literature how how is doing world literature, which is to be aware of circulation of different scales or different the multiplicity of, uh, of um, yeah, of tastes and uh, and scales of literature. How does it? What what does it mean to do it from a particular location, mm. and from a particular location that is um, also um, not that of not a particularly you know Im- or one that one would immediately recognize as cosmopolitan. Mm. So you know if of course if you talk about you know the big. Uh, courtly centres or the big courts or, say, port cities or, you know, big hubs. Mm-hmm. Of course, again, um, you know, war literature in terms of circulation of people, of books, becomes more easy to uh, to imagine uh, and perhaps to trace. But what does it mean to do war literature from um, from a region that is actually, that doesn't have an imperial centre that is kind of scattered in, you know, small towns and uh, and the countryside um, over over a long a long period.
0: Uh, yeah, so the the multilingual and located approach that you talk about that uh, really seems to come out in your choice of centering Purab or Avadh in your study. So, would you like to talk a bit about that approach and why did you choose Avadh as? The case study.
1: Yes. So, as I said, located because I think every approach to world literature is located. So, um, and um, you know, one of the one of the notions that I use is that, in fact, of the multilingual local. And in local, is not for me a particular scale, you know, a small town or a city or so on. But it's really this kind of the idea of a of a location, and multilingual, partly because that's the reality there on the ground. If you take this area, which corresponds to current Eastern Uttar Pradesh uh, or, and was called you know, Purab, and the people there were Purbiyas or, um, and then um, becomes known, I mean, Avad was the name of uh, Ayodhya, you know, the, the sort of medieval name uh-huh. of the city of Ayodhya and was already a kind of province. And so the area, in Mughal terms, the area that I talk about is really two, two provinces, two suvas of Avad, so Ayodhya and Allahabad, and so they they are my purab. And there you have Persian, you have what later gets called Avadi. At the time, it's just called Hindavi or Baka or language. You've got Sanskrit, you've um, you've got the Sant mixed language. So you've got, you know, it is a multilingual local. But my contention and the contention of the of the project that I led, which was called Multilingual Significant um, Locals and Significant Geographies at uh, SOAS for five years was that, in fact, um, you know, basically tell me, you know, show me one region of the world that is not multilingual. So uh, multilingualism is not, you know, in uh, a particular um, you know, unusual or unique feature of either this region or, you know, India as a whole. But, you know, Italy is multilingual. Britain is multilingual. France is multilingual. You know, um, if you start, you know, if you start um, um, going beyond the national language and take, for example, you know, bolis, you know, uh, spoken languages or, you um, the sort of like other languages that one lear- has been, you know, learnt and still learns at school, or the languages of um, minorities. Then actually, um, my contention in this book that a located and multilingual approach is useful for discovering, you know, the variety and the life of literature, um, not just in in and in North India, but basically anywhere. So. Uh, you know, I hope that people will be inspired. And in fact, of course, there, there exist studies of um, you know multilingual literary cultures in, I don't know, Eastern Europe, in Latin America. You know, so the idea is that this is in, in North America, even multilingual American literature. So this is actually quite a you know not not unusual but rather common phenomenon. And but because literary history is usually studied according to language. This is an approach, an attempt to say, "Okay, how can we write a literary history that is multilingual, that takes multilingualism as um, a kind of structuring structure, as Brad Bourdieu would say, of society and of literature.
0: One way of doing that uh, in the book that you propose is uh, following a genre through history or writing a literary history of a genre in a way and you choose the katha genre and uh, kind of show how the katha ja- genre is traveling across languages scripts communities uh, and how writers and poets are intervening very confidently in the local world without these texts reaching distant readers as you know someone like david Damrosch expect it to be to qualify for it to be world literature in the first place so could you tell us a bit about this on what does following this uh, through history tell us about world literature
1: yes yeah, so katha is a very generic term for a story no katha kehna from uh, um, and the reason why i use it you know is to um uh to sort of um, you, well, first use an emic term, so you, a term that has actually is used in the text, but also to, as you say, to uh, bring together texts that otherwise would be considered as belonging to different groups or different traditions um, of different languages. Um, because we are endlessly surprised that people, oh, how can, you know, how can these Persian intellectuals be aware of this Hindi story? Or how can, you know, uh, Brajvasha writers know about this Persian tale? Um, and actually, I think if instead we think of, and the Kathar genre, of course, like songs, like most other genres uh, in the early modern period was what um, um, Nara Narao calls an oral literature genre, so a genre that we, you know, was copied in text, but also recited or performed. Uh, so people would hear it, uh, and would, and people would hear it who would not necessarily know how to read the text in that particular script. And in fact, one of the consequences is that we see text copied in multiple scripts because, you know. Uh, the text itself is the same, but depending on the script that the patron of the copy was familiar with, or the copies was familiar with, we find the same Padmavat written in uh, Persian script, or in uh, Keti script, or in Nagari script. Um, now, in modern literary histories, um, uh, someone like uh, you know the, the key Hindi uh, literary scholar uh, and historian Ramchandra Shukla coined the term premakyan, mm. so Roma, which is a calque for romance, so a love story, uh, and used it particularly for the Sufi katas, which call themselves actually pem qatars, prem katas, prem katas, you know, love stories. And by doing that in his Hindi uh, Saitik in Hindi Saiti literary history, he actually divided uh, the katas, um, like, say, um, Jain katas or you know, Hindu Katas, or um take a, a kata like the Ramcharitmanas, which also calls itself you know, a Ram Kata or a Krishna kata, from this Premakyan, which were written by Sufis, which were not completely Indian, as he said. So for me, going actually back to using the term kata that you find in the text is the way instead of showing that uh, um as we can see in um, uh, in Padmavat, somebody like uh, its authors uh, Malik Muhammad Jaisi, was clearly aware and very familiar with the Ramayana story. Uh, so, you know, for him, whether of course not Tulsi's uh, story, but and some other form of Ramkatha or Krishna Krishna Katha, he wrote himself a Krishna Katha called Kanhavat, were you know familiar. He must have heard them uh, around. And then then the story, um, and and, and following the story means that you can actually see how different authors for different groups or communities of taste retell the story in their own way and, as I say, say, inflect it in particular ways. So they can, for example, if you are a Persian writer of a Ramayana story, I mean, how are you going to write about Ram? How are you going to write about Sita? You've got various possibilities. You can make them more human, you can make them more heroic, you can make them less heroic, you can make them more divine, less divine. So um, I think that this idea of retelling, which of course we have already from... Uh, Ekeramanujans, yeah. you know, um, 300 Ramayanas, you know, it's not a new story, you know, in a way, you're not a new approach. But it's this idea of, of saying that people will have been uh, I mean, you can see in the text, their awareness with a whole range of stories, not just in the language that they write in. Uh, and then you can become interested in instead, the particular uh, textual and generic features that they remold the story in so that for example in the 19th century as you know there's a, a great uh, phd for example on urdu ramayans mm. now interestingly you know 19th century writers of urdu ramayans can either have or or maybe both have the sanskrit the hindi ramayan or the persian ramayans as their source mm. and actually you can see how they are kind of bringing together, choosing, selecting uh, what elements, uh, what um, stylistic elements, what kind of narrative elements, uh, what ideological elements they want to bring in their story. You know, the earliest Hindi Shakuntala is actually, you know, comes from Braj that is aware of the Persian Shakuntala Mm -hmm. as well as the Sanskrit one. So, you know, that's following also shows us the reworking, but also the, yeah, the kind of the multi-layered, the multilingual mm-hmm. hmm, world in which these of which these texts are part, rather than, again, you know, separate traditions, separate language traditions.
0: Uh, Professor Osini, uh, this um, awareness about uh, different stories, different traditions, in these writers and in these works, uh, is exhibited uh, also in the Santh poets who you write about, uh, and you call that process ventriloquism, which is, uh, if I am correct, a way to channel different metaphors and, and different sort of different sorts of uh, stories while giving performances in a way, uh, and there. And Sun poetry is important to you in this book because they are very largely performative and oral, and the oral is usually excluded from world literature because it is not written down. So you also make a case for making world literature oral in a way to extend its uh, conceptual limits. So would you uh, like to talk a bit yes. about that?
1: Yes. So, I mean, if we think of some poets, I mean, I think everybody's familiar with Kabir. Yeah and maybe Namdev, so the big names, but actually in this book, um, I focus on the kind of more local ones, uh, like Malukdas or Paltudas, and uh, what you find is that they are, what I call ventriloquizing, is that they They show, uh, so as if they're speaking in different voices. So they they speak in the voice of, uh, you know, they use women's song, they use uh, seasonal songs, they use swing songs, chulna songs, they use holy songs, they use um, kind of Sufi, um, um, Sufi idioms, they use even uh, uh, kind of quasi-Persian, as I say, you know, so uh, so they use... uh, in, in linguistic terms, um, they don't use Persian meters, but they they use Persian phrases and uh, in a way, like the, you would do English today. Uh, so you would not necessarily use the whole English or use English meters, but you use, use English words and phrases. So, um, of course, I don't know exactly why they're doing it. You know, mine is just a, a speculation. But... Um, a certain variety, of course, you find in a lot of poets of this time, again, think of Tulsidas, you know, he does also, he does, you know, he works in different meters and uh, um, and um, and he, he clearly, you know, enjoys showing that he can do a Ramayan in Kabitte form, in uh, um, Barvai or, um, or in, not not him, but in Chopai, um, Doha um, and so on. But uh, what I find in the sense that in a way that's kind of multiplied and uh, um, and it seems like my interpretation, at least for Maluk Das or Paltu Das, is partly a kind of communicative one that, you know, I'm going to talk to you about um, the sort of mystical realities or the practice that is needed or the values that are needed. But I'm going to talk to, you know, I'm going to present them to you in, uh, in forms, in song forms, poetic forms that you are already familiar with, in metaphors drawn from the every, from professions, from, you know, kind of stories and emotions that you're already familiar with. And I'm going to stamp, put my stamp uh, on them however so often what you see is that uh, a sun song at the end will have you know it's the will have the twist so this seems to be a whole sort say uh, weaving or a whole song about um, pining for your uh, absent husband but in the last line I'm going to say but actually you know the true one is your beloved and he's always with you or something like that um, now what I find interesting from the point of view of world literature as you say is that typically world literature because it comes from this idea of you know written text often printed wide range in circulation um, thinks of uh, circulation only in terms of translation so you know that recirculates is the uh, um so in world literature, because world literature always thinks in terms of texts and printed texts and the circulation of printed texts across languages uh, in, in from the point of view of word literature can only happen through translation. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, um, both qatars and sand poetry are a very good example of the circulation of tastes and of stories and of metaphors topoi and so on not necessarily through translation what i call a kind of poetic traffic without translation which explains why up to the 19th century 20th century even now uh, and and in fact um, later parsi theater and then film pick up on this you know variety and circulation without translation that even people who are not you know uh, formally educated in different languages or different poetic idioms immediately understand a Sufi idiom a Sant idiom a Bhakti idiom um, because you know they have access through it through oral uh, through a lot of it through songs in fact And. Uh... And I think this is again this again, I think this is not just true of India. Yeah. I'm sure that, you know, if one were to look in you know other parts of the world, our, our literary tastes are not just built on books. That's what I mean, want to say. And I think world literature will to uh become more, you know, open open to to songs, for example, or to uh, yeah, access to um, how do we access, uh, how do we get, how do we gain our literary tastes and how do they become part of our bodies?
0: Uh, so Professor Ossini, one reason why um, sant songs or sant poetry is so important for world literature is because it also brings to the fore an element of anti-caste sentiment which is quite prominent in at least some of these poets' works. So, could you talk a bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, I mean, Sant poetry, so the poetry of um, um, devotees, and uh, actually Sante is a really nice term because it comes close to a saint, and so they're poets, and saints They are, themselves become of, of devotion or uh, in fact leaders of uh, new communities. Um, and some of them, the most famous one, if you think of Kabir or Guru Nanak, certainly are in a way already part of war literature in terms of the, their fame. The Many times they've been, uh, they've been translated and they're yeah, kind of a worldwide circulation, you could say. But as you say, sons are also important for war literature, from my perspective, in other ways um, for what i say they kind of stamp the everyday so they take any kind of uh, of uh, available poetic and song form around and they kind of twist it at the end and one of these ways one of their one of their one of their topics you could say or one of their concerns is in fact uh, the fact that it's devotion and uh, you know a pure heart, a heart full of longing, a heart full of bhakti, uh, that is what matters and not and not um, divisions of high and low or divisions of gender or in fact divisions of caste. So caste is actually, if one looks, is not necessarily a very large proportion of uh, mm. of their of their songs and of their oeuvre, uh, even for those who are like ravidas in North India, you know, born in the lowest caste, but they are important because a they they talk about it uh, and they critique caste, they critique uh, the whole idea that you know somebody should not be touched or that somebody is polluting because of the you know of their birth and because of the profession they do, but also I think there's another uh, aspect to it which is that particularly sun poetry, and not just because of caste, but certainly also because of that, become a very important, um, themselves become a kind of space for critique and for uh, self-definition and self-assertion for a lot of low caste devotees themselves, Mm. men and women, young and old, illiterate a lot of the times. And in fact, um, as the... Um, anecdote of Nirala and Chaturi the cobbler that mm. I quote uh, shows that they're not, just, uh, um, they're, not just, um, they're not just they're not just au they're not just they not just understand the message, but sand poetry and sand songs become a way uh, of uh, um, acquiring uh, and then being able to transmit very deep knowledge and very and, and also a kind of an aesthetic, an aesthetic made of of images, of um, you know sound play, of a particular construction of songs that you find and of poems that you find in sun songs and not in other poetry around them. So it's not just because of their popularity and circulation, but also because they are, uh, you know, they are. They, they are uh, important for a very wide community of taste, which is, which again uh, shows that literature is not just about you know mm. uh, refinement, but it's about also emotion and refinement in this kind of religious emotion and cultivation of of the self and of sensibility and of a sense of community.
0: Yeah, Professor Osini, uh, you pointed out in the book somewhere that this cross-fertilization between different poetic idioms is like a really defining feature of Sant poetry. But if we look at what was going on in the kasbas, as you talk in one of the chapters in your book, uh, where you have um, local patronage networks kind of trying to imitate the imperial, the Mughal sort of patronage networks in, in bigger imperial cities. Uh, but here in Kasbahs of Awadh, uh, you see that there are um, literary traditions uh, in Persian or Hindi or Braj Bhasha existing in parallel. So even though our th- in let's say the 16th or the 17th centuries is multilingual, the poets working in these languages are multilingual, but we do not see that kind of uh, cross-fertilization between different traditions. Why is that? Why is that happening?
1: Yes, for me, the question of, okay, this is a multilingual society, as you say, people are multilingual, spaces are multilingual, then why is it that certain poets uh, mix idioms and, and languages and some don't? Uh, and rather than thinking it in terms of, uh, you know, rather than jumping to uh, a general answer, I have been really thinking, and, and of course these are just hypotheses of, of why one choice or another Now, in the context of the kind of sophisticated or cultivated, you could say, uh, poet poet scholars of the Qasbas, as you you say, whether they are Muslims or Hindu um, and who learn Persian and uh, Rajpasha, some learn Sanskrit, some learn, you know, um, Arabic, it seems to me that... um, even when we know and when they say that they uh, learned and cultivated one of the, and enjoyed more than one language and more than one language tradition, <clears throat> the premium was on mastery, on showing their mastery of, that, of each poetic code. So in a way, mixing was not, um, you know, was not conducive to their aim. If their aim was to show that, look, I can, I, a Persian-educated, you know, Muslim soldier, but also man of the pen from the Kasbah of Bilgram. I can do Persian poetry very well, but I can also do Brajvarsha poetry completely well, mm. so that I'm recognized as a master. And I'm recognized as a master in a way that modern Hindi scholars say, oh, you don't even see that he's a Muslim. You don't see, mm. you know, he's he's like uh, any other Brajbasha poet. And the same as, in fact, um, Rajiv Kindra has shown for Chandrabhan uh, Raman, the same, you know, his, he wants to show that he's a Persian poet, like all the best Persian poets. He's not mixing mm-hmm. any any Hindi in it. Um, and it's quite interesting in a way that I think some of the patrons do. Uh, um, so um, um, Khan-e-Khanan, Abdurahim khan khanan famously mm-hmm. does and famously, you know, shows that he can write in different um, in different languages but it seems that the poets uh, particularly if they become kind of professional poets court, courtiers they will specialise they will know more than one language often but they will specialise in one and will not mix whereas I think I mean and again this is a hypothesis um, if I think of a sant like Maluk Das in the Kasbah of Qara mm-hmm. which is you know dotted with Sufi Shrines, Sufi uh, establishments, uh, is a Muslim majority Qasbah. You know the fact that he uh, he can do he can do women songs, he can do swing songs, <clears throat> spring songs, he can do holy songs, he can also do Sufi type songs. That is a way, in a way, a kind of. Um, cultural translation you could say or cultural religious translation that Sufis themselves were doing so you see the the mixing and the translating of of ideas and of images going on both ways
0: Hmm. and and towards the end of that chapter you kind of caution us against not seeing this uh, of course this is when urdu kind of replaces braj Bhasha in a way at least in uh, at least in how literary historiography about this period is written it is uh, perceived to have replaced braj Bhasha in a way uh, in the 18th century and then there is the other side of this where we see this the coexistence of different languages as uh, popularized by the phrase, you know, Ganga, Jamuni, Tehzeeb, like a pre-lapsarian, pre-colonial whole. Uh, and you caution us against both these approaches. So how is it that we are to proceed in, in, in this case?
1: Yes, so in the first case, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, I think if you talk to anybody and say, "What what is for you the culture of Abad? they will only think or immediately think of Urdu, courtesans, mm-hmm. you know, the city of Lucknow. And in a way, um, for me, it's interesting, exactly, not 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 as a sort of uh, wanting to puncture anybody's, you know, um, narrative, but really it's interesting to see how languages and literary tastes changed even in the pre-colonial period, in the pre-modern period that... Um yeah, I mean, Urdu was not popular until 1750 in this region and then became hugely popular. So popular, mm-hmm. in fact, that it uh, kind of erased the memory of the earlier, um, earlier tastes. And that's, in a way, how things go, rather than, oh, Urdu is, you know, we have to find some kind of... Uh, um, continuous ancient line and with hindi also we have to confine a continuous ancient line that's to me seems not to be the way things work have worked um, on the other hand um, often in uh, in in literary histories and accounts of this region already in the uh, on the early 20th century particularly when uh, You know communal or you know religious tensions, religious riots, uh, sort of wreck Indian cities, North Indian Mm. cities in the 1920s. Then this idea that oh uh, you know sons, for example, mm, somebody Mm. like Kabir can you know embrace and speak in more than one idiom, uh, a Muslim but who seems to speak in a Hindu idiom that becomes a A proof of uh, social harmony, and for me that's uh, again too much of a simplification. That actually is uh, um, is unhelpful because, as uh, as Gramsci, as other you know um, yeah. Raymond Williams and other scholars of culture have taught us. I mean, culture is always a domain of uh, of conflict, of hierarchy, of struggle, not just of struggle, but so um you know without again wanting to point, posit some kind of um immemorial you know ancestral enmity between languages or between people uh i i don't think one should also posit multilingualism necessarily as um you know as a kind of embracing of an other rather than you know different aspects different um different tastes with different aspects of the self that could very well coexist with, I don't know, right. uh, you know, caste feelings with, uh, you know, enmities towards other communities, um, uh, misogyny, you know, all kinds of, right. um, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, social, um, social attitudes. Uh, in fact, there's a very nice, uh, very interesting character in um, Rahima Sumraza's novel Topi Shukla, Uh, Mm -hmm. his grandmother, so he's a Brahmin, but he comes from a kind of Urdu-Persian-educated household. Mm -hmm. And his mother, uh, Raza tells us, she loves Persian poetry and hates Muslims. And I think that's quite important in the sense that, you know, one doesn't have to go, not because you love Persian poetry, you have to have, particular ideas about, you know, society or other communities. Um, Yeah, I think that's quite useful to keep in mind.
0: And uh, since we were talking about culture, uh, a very important change that comes uh, is uh, the colonial encounter beginning in the 19th century, I think. And that changes at least... Superficially, so a lot of things. So can you just tell us briefly about what effects does colonialism have on the multilingual literary culture of Awad in the 19th century and let's say in the 20th century as well?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, this is uh, the topic of my fifth and last chapter. And, mm-hmm. and basically I take a kind of position against something that I think I also embraced earlier or a lot of us embraced earlier, this idea of the complete epistemic shift. And uh, mm. in a way, you know, colonialism coming and changing everything and reshaping um, individuals and society and relationships completely. Now, of course, and, and and what instead I try to posit that, of course, at the level of, you know, the basics, the institutions, you know, the printing press, associations, uh, you know, public education, um ideas about language and literature ideas about society about progress i mean of course colonialism has a huge impact and and i'm not going to deny that but i think mm. that we have perhaps i mean i think that one of the advantages of coming to colonialism from the pre from um the periods before it is that we can see the continuities and the kind of rearrangements of tastes instead of, you know, a complete epistemic shift. So, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, and and I think particularly, and and we have to, in a way, train our eye uh, a little bit away from or, you know, to go beyond um, the innovations, the literary innovations that we always focus on. So the novel, the essay, you know, or, you know, the kind of the modern educated, English educated intellectual, and see kind of modernity just as a Indian modernity as a kind of translation from English. Um, I think if we train our eye and look at um, at some of even fact of the key people uh, like Bhartendu Harishchandra in Benares, if we look even at magazines or if we look at theatre, we see that actually a lot of the older tastes um, continue. They may coexist now with new tastes and coexist in attention. Uh, so yeah. I, th- I find it very useful for the colonial period to look at um, at contradictions, you know, people who say they're going to do one thing and then what they do mm. is something else. So they say they're going to write in this language, but then other, you know, they ha- you have Bartendu, bartendo, we have to write in modern Hindi. But then all his poetry is in Rajvasha. His, uh, his uh, plays are full of, uh, you know, Urdu and um, popular songs. He published a lot of popular songs. In fact, his output and that of Vajid Ali Shah, the last king of Avad quite overlap in many ways, in their taste for songs, in their taste for theatre. So then, you know, then this kind of um, neat narrative of subst- replacement, you know, colonial modernity as a replacement, as a complete innovation, as a dichotomization a kind of separation of Hindus mm-hmm. and Muslims and Hindi and Urdu. You know, it's not that it's not true, but it's it gets complicated by... By what people did and what people liked, and um, and in a way, theatre and of course after it, cinema is a very good place to to look. But also magazines, you know, magazines are a wonderful mm. um, wonderful platform because you know a lot of new genres coexist with uh, the kind of celebration and the transmission of older older tastes and older, you know, older figures.
0: Yeah and uh professor ossini one thing that i was really fascinated w- by was uh, the kind of mm, the emphasis on education that seems to be there in in the cultivation of literary tastes among these uh, multilingual writers and uh, poets and so on which was there even before the colonial colonial encounter in the case of avad where we gave the example of a man who was trained in Persian, Brajpasha and all these. So you were expected to be learned in these languages. And then of course, with the coming of English education, uh, you get access to uh, um, literatures from Europe um, in English and French and so on. And another effect that this has is that with the setting up of schools and colleges, you also have the emergence of a lot of publishing companies and houses in places like Allahabad and Lucknow and Kanpur, so so how how are we to understand the role that uh, education plays in in our conceptualization of world literature or uh, multilingual cultures?
1: Yes, so so education, of course, is one of the kind of um, cornerstones of the imperial mission, isn't it? No, is the idea that yeah, oh, yeah. whatever we may be drawing from that society, but we give them. Education. Now, as scholars of, um, and historians of education in India have pointed out, um, this kind of grand declarations uh, were matched by actually very little um, direct investment on the ground. So, until I mean, I think probably until after independence, or probably even maybe even later, you know, English schools were very, very few and far between and, and expensive, you know, just. Uh, um, I think at modern, you know, public education, um, colonial education remain more a kind of model. Um, and of course, the, the colonial education system set itself up as the, uh, you know, as the awarder of degrees and as the, you know, the inspection. Mm. But actually, most of the schools were set up by, you know, local local individuals or local groups and so on and english was not a very great part of Mm. education in uh, in north india apart from the you know the the college college education in fact Mm. um i mean as we know that's become you know that remained the kind of um, weakness of um, education in india well, well until you know after independence, that uh, there was an investment in higher education and less in primary education. Mm. So I think um, the, of course, um, universities and college education remained until the nineteen twenties. You know, in you know, largely in English or almost completely in English. Um, but my point is that actually. Um, very few people could could actually get there, could get their degrees mm. and could uh, uh even somebody like Princean really got his degree, you know, all many years after he'd started working and um, you mm. know, uh he, he he only got it as an adult, no, his BA. Mm. Um, but in fact if we see if we look at magazines again I think we can see that Urdu magazines, Hindi magazines. I'm sure other mag- magazines in other languages in other parts of India do a lot of work. I think really magazines are a kind of supplement to education. Uh, education is very limited in practice, but it's magazines that translate through from English through English and make um, you know make the world make modern knowledge make knowledge about the rest of the world and as part of it gradually also knowledge about um literatures of the world available mm-hmm. to um to to north indian readers certainly not um you know and and i think that's what i find quite interesting in a way is the um the difference that within the education system English literature remains, you know, the pinnacle. That's the model, Mm. the pinnacle. Poetry, Mm. uh, you know, prose, um, fiction writing. And then you start seeing that in the magazines, you start getting French and Russian and then, Mm. uh, you know, particularly the wonderful, you know, translations of Miraji for Adabi Udunia, which is a Lahore publication. Even Japanese and Chinese and, you know, um, um, Southeast Asian language. So you know, really, the 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 uh, horizon broadens mm. much more than, uh, yeah, much more widely than Britain mm. or even empire. Mm.
0: Well, that that sounds uh, very interesting. But Professor Sin, if I was just to uh, take you back to a little bit about the making of this book. Uh, you seem to have, you know, consulted a lot of material from many different sources and you seem to also have conducted substantial field work in Uttar Pradesh. How was the experience like? How, As a literary historian, uh, could you tell us maybe anecdotes or your experiences about, uh, about the process of researching for this book?
1: Yes yeah, so I I mean I've been going to UP and to Allahabad for the last 38 years so <laughs> this book came after you know a lot of familiarity certainly with uh, you know with the city of Allahabad some with Benares, uh Lucknow and and the libraries there but in a way this book which uh takes me back much further back than my previous books uh than my previous research um, also involved, um, as you say, more field work, field work. in I can't claim to have gone to, you know, all the kasbas that I that I write about. But certainly the journeys to Jais uh, and the tri- and the trips to uh, to Gaius and to Kara were very um, very evocative and and very um, very instructive in a way that, um, if, for example, when we when I went to Jais with with friends you know we went there and it looked like uh, you know there was this, a street of shops like any other <laughs> sort of North Indian town and uh, and I thought okay, how do I find Jayase in here? Um, but then through a friend actually um, one of our, you know the friends with me, Sarah Rai, she called somebody a friend of hers in Lucknow who knew somebody in Jayas who actually ran a petrol pump. and first you know he saw this motley group of people there. And he was, you know, he made us sit there and looked at us for a, for quite a while, you know, whether she should take us seriously or not. <laughs> and then he said, OK, come with me. And then we went beyond, past this street of shops, and we climbed up a hill. And, you know, from the top of the hill, actually, there's just the foundations of what is said to be Jesse's house, but several of the other houses, you know, they have this thin Lakori um, bricks that Clearly, you know, are centuries old with centuries old doors and, uh, and also from the top you could see the remnants of the, uh, of the walls with the various ramparts and the various towers that occur, in the description of, um, um, of the well a transposed description of the city I think in Jaisis Canhavat and also all the, all the Sarovar you know all the ponds outside, so. Um, and also, for example, from there we went to Ameti nearby, which is really close by, about, I don't know, 20 kilometers or maybe less, where is actually the tomb of Jayasi is. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stories and again, you think, oh, this is a story and it's made, you know, it's just trying cleverly to link things together, but there's a story that Jayasi used to go to the Darbar of the Local Raja of Ameti, and he was, you know, he would come and go, and and then this local history of Jairus says that he was buried there, and there he was buried there, you know, really close to the site hmm. of of the palace. So, um, you know, I think if you go, maybe at first you are struck by the difference or the lack, or you know how you can't see what's there in the text, but then. You know, if you're lucky, I suppose. If you, um, if you're patient, if you, you know, try to get this vision um, and try to find some references. Of course, not in terms of direct reflection, but, but, but a sense of the um, that this, you know, there there is some correspondence between text and space, which, uh, um, yeah, has been really really important for me of course I didn't visit any you know mud and brick fort they were pulled down by the British when they pacified mm. avad but you know uh you start trusting mm. I suppose some of the descriptions in the text uh more as well uh, and, and uh, uh, so sorry maybe maybe if I should also just say uh so this pro- this book came out of two projects but the earlier project which was really a um, how to, you know, a collective project on how to do multilingual literary history, and and people um, who came uh, part of this project worked on all over of North and Central India. But I tried to keep, you know, throughout the three years of that project and five years of the other project, I tried to keep my focus on texts from this region, from different languages, and particularly texts or genres that. Um, either gave a sense of space, so local histories for example, or descriptive poems, um, or that were in some way multilingual. So then, you know, little little by little, and of course there are huge, you know, it's not a it's not a mm-hmm. comprehensive history by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, little by little sort of bits came together and uh, and and I tried to find links across languages links between people, um, find out what they read and what their tastes were and what their education was. And and so, you know, yes, the, the book slowly came together.
0: Uh, we're so glad that that kind of sustained uh, engagement with the space of our world, uh, you know, we re- really see that come out evocative in the book. And so if I were just to ask you, uh, where do you think World literature as a field of study, if I may, stands today and how would you like it to develop or to what um, context would you like it to become sensitive?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's already changed quite a bit compared to how it was, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, maybe in uh, university courses, you still get taught uh, you know, as theorists of world literature, the same uh, three people, you know, Moretti, Casanova, and Damrosh. But I think now in terms mm-hmm. of um, approaches to world literature, I mean, um, I will mention again the, the series of Cambridge studies in world literature that I co-edit with Debjani Ganguly. And, and there, mm-hmm. you know, and I really like, as I said, her her definition of world literature as an optics and as a ground for conversation. So I think mm. what, for me, you know, and in this case of my book, of course, it was very much about grounding it, saying, well, mm. literature cannot be just, uh, you know, systems and global circulation. It has to be located from, in a particular, it has to be, has to have layers and, and complexity. Mm. Otherwise, it's not worth having. Other, other interesting Work that has been done at the moment is between neighborly traditions. So, Levi Thompson's book on mm. Persian and Arabic modernism, for example, or mm. on um, uh, you know the again some kind of non um, a complex sense of literary temporality. So, there's a book, another book coming out in the series uh, by uh, Samuel Hodgkin on on Persian on the on Persian tastes in the kind of Eastern Bloc, so Soviet Union, you know, the communist writers mm. who came with a Persianate mm. uh, um, a Persianate education and background and sens- literary sensibility and transformed it. So didn't you know jettison it, mm. throw it all away, uh, but but transformed it. So then we have many different ways of doing war literature. And I think we who work on uh you know parts of different you know parts of the world beyond mm-hmm. europe parts of the world that would seem peripheral or languages that don't have such a big global uh footprint uh, i think we can still um find in fact interesting ways of um uh, of um con- of, of look- looking for connections looking for uh particular views looking for what are the te- what are the genres that are locally significant, um, mm. and so on and so forth? I think uh, there's a lot of scope for me, particularly, to think about kind of what you could call South-South connections or connections yeah. that do not go via the you know via Europe or via via the West. But you know, and of course, the work that historians have done on the indian ocean for example or on mm. yeah the persian world or i mean i think there's a lot of east asia you know there's a lot of um i think uh, probably and, and that's where my term significant geographies comes in you know probably scales and connections that are not you know global in a you know you know in a full sense of the world like everywhere and dominant and so on mm. it may they may be actually quite um subterranean or quite um mm. you know coexist with other trajectories but but there are in- interesting stories to be told in one of the um, um special issues that are co-edited um uh, in this case with letizia Zakini there's a wonderful uh, uh, article by melanie Bourlet on polar literature polar lo- Wolof, you know from eastern africa and how what is what is location and what is world for polar literature? Where is really the the investment that people put in keeping these books, in finding them? They don't really want to, you know, achieve um, kind of uh, fame uh, by trans- getting the books translated. For them, polar books are ways of gathering a community, gathering a community, for example, in France or in Russia or in the Middle East, wherever. People have gone, have migrated for for work. So you know, then obviously the world in Pular literature or in Swahili literature is very different from the world in you know English or or German. Mm. But you know, I think we are, um, you know, we are the richer. And if we attend to these different stories, that's a kind of sense, thick sense of the world that I that I like. Mm.
0: Well, uh, Professor Ossini, we have already taken up a lot of your time. Uh, but if you would like to suggest or recommend any book to our listeners that you really like or that we really look up to, and if you could tell us any projects that you're working on currently. I mean, we got a sense of that, but yeah, if you could.
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, in terms of books, I think for world literature, for me, uh, the Cambridge history of world literature edited by Devjani Ganguli is really the you know the best that is there out there and in fact okay. precisely because it showcases the many different ways that you can do world literature and, and why it's actually important for people like us uh, who otherwise may feel quite alienated by the you know global mm-hmm. anglophone to be part of world literature and to look out and collaborate with others and and find interesting projects. Um, another book that I've really, um, uh, you know, admired and enjoyed, and I think is very evocative and very original, um, is Ronit Rich's um, um, second book. I mean, Islam Translated, of course, was very, um, has been very influential as well, um, but her second book. Or called Banishment and Belonging, on uh, mm. uh, the Malay diaspora in uh, in Sri Lanka. Again, it's that kind of, you know, uh, surprising and interestingly layered and complex uh, set of narratives and set of meanings, you know, the idea that Sri, Sri Lanka, Ceylon, is important to Malays, um, but also that it has more than one, there's already more than one word, more than one tradition, more than one you know um, layer to it uh, already shows how things are uh, you know how it, it pays it pays to pay attention to the layers and the and the different strands um, and really I think all the books in the in the Cambridge studies of world liter- um, in world literature so far have been you know really I think quite pathbreaking you know the Duncan Yoon on China in African, the African literary imagination. Um, uh, as I said, Levi Thompson, Samuel Hodgkin, Ruan Cantor on Latin America and South Asia. You know, so this, making these mm-hmm. connections, drawing these things together, draw, drawing literatures together beyond, you know, the the, the paths that, um, yeah, a certain kind of Eurocentric um, comparatism uh, has sort of pushed us in and my current project is okay. on magazines so again is on uh, magazines in uh, magazines and world literature but trying to bring together the languages i can work with so hindi or hindi urdu um german and italian so that i'm starting that mm. project now okay mm.
0: well that that sounds very interesting and we wish you all the best with that uh, thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast and uh, Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you very much for your questions, uh, Khalid, and thank you all for listening.